I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist, with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week... I'm talking to John Barton about his crime novel, Dive. John is a London-based stage and screenwriter. His theatre work has been performed at major venues across the UK. He's a member of BAFTA and has written for the BBC. He's also a writing tutor for several organisations and edits for the literary consultancy. In this episode, we discuss the challenges involved in turning his screenplay into a novel, how to approach writing an authentic voice from a woman's perspective when you're a man, and how to cope with the aspects of publishing that are out of your control. But first, here's John with an excerpt from Dive. David watched in silence as Tunde fed Naomi's umbilical cord with his hands. Both men honoured the omerta that came with the job, trying to ignore the dangers they'd decided not to tell Naomi about. How a sudden rush of water into the nose and throat could inhibit a vital cranial nerve and cause sudden loss of consciousness and death. To dive in the Thames was to roll the dice, and while training could protect you up to a point, the risks were never far away. He'd seen the Thames best countless divers in his time. Even people that had been to war zones were no match for it. For when you found a body down there in the kind of dark that spoke back, you wanted for all the world to fill your lungs with air. Against your instincts, you had to learn to relax. Naomi surfaced suddenly. She was rasping, coughing hard. David bent down. You're in shock. He spoke in a murmur so the other divers couldn't hear. You're all right. Steady your breathing. Stay calm. Breathe in. She did, her eyes meeting with his own. Do you want to stop? Naomi shook her head. David nodded. You've got this. Go again. Naomi ducked under and silence fell once more. Tunde watched the water anxiously. Give her a minute, David said. Tunde felt two tugs on the line. David, my cord. David hauled his mask over his face, took a deep breath and folded into the water. He was instantly met with a ferocious cold. The shock was a familiar pain that tentacled through his veins. His ears rang with the grinding harmonics of shifting water. He came to the Jack's Day wire and fed himself along its length, his right hand sweeping ahead, 
his fingers grazed a hard surface. Then Naomi's hand. It gripped him fiercely as his free hand travelled along her lower arm. She was snagged on something. He fumbled in the dark for the knife on his belt and used it to cleave her vest buckle. Naomi was free. David followed her as she rose. Residue dribbled down his mask and through the refractions he witnessed Tunde helping Naomi to the boat. She ditched her mask and retched over the side several feet away from where he was treading water. Before he could reach the boat, David heard the alarm. Tunde was waving to turn about. It was then that David noticed the blood. Hi, John. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you on with me today to discuss your debut novel, Dive. Hi, Chloe. I'm thrilled to be talking to you and be on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, John, can you start by telling us what Dive is about? Yes. Dive is a crime thriller set in London, and it's about a police diver called David who uh, works for the Met Police. And his job is to bring up bodies and not ask questions. And if it's not bodies, it's evidence and objects. And he is training a disgraced detective called Naomi, who still believes in the core mission of the police and she doesn't see eye to eye with him. And the story really begins when David's daughter Lex goes missing and stops answering her phone. And at the same time, David and Naomi start pulling bodies out of the river that match Lex's description. So as the investigation deepens and David becomes increasingly desperate to find Lex, they find themselves working on both sides of the law and wading through sewers beneath the city and coming face to face with the truth about what happened. And that's an incredibly tense time for the reader as well, because we're waiting or hoping we don't see the moment when a body turns out to be Lex, but um, I won't give away any spoilers in this chat and, and neither will you. But I wanted to touch on the kind of genesis of this novel because I read that it actually started life as a screenplay. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and what made you decide to change its form and turn it into a novel? Yeah, that's a great question. I have been a screenwriter for some years at this point. And I think there are sort of some ideas that come at you like a bolt from the blue. You know, you can't let them go. You can't leave them alone. And this was the case with Dive. You know, sometimes I'll kind of be very actively thinking about ideas and developing them. In the case of this, I was in a workshop for something and I had sort of zoned out momentarily. And this idea of police divers and and David kind of came into my head really quickly. And I spent the, the rest of that workshop thinking, yeah, there's something in that. Why is there something in that? What's that about? And at exactly the same time, I was working in a um, a pub opposite the Marine Police, or right next to the Marine Police even. And um, I realised why that had happened, because they were kind of coming in and they were sharing war stories with me and they we, I was pulling pints for them and they were telling me about their shift. And they work very short shifts because it's quite dangerous work. Um, so they'd always have time to kind of talk about uh, their life, as coppers do, I think, because they have a very kind of... Um, they have a very dangerous job a lot of the time, a very dark outlook, a very, very black sense of humour. So they were kind of happy to talk about their experiences. And um, those kind of two things made me realise that I hadn't seen that in any kind of fictional space before. 
Um, but I was a screenwriter. So screenplay writing is I, un, you know, I'm a huge cinephile. Like I understand that form. I feel like I know that like the back of my hand because I've been raised and weaned on, you know, everything from 70s political thrillers to, you know, 80s monster movies and all that stuff. So I feel like I understand the form. And I wrote this screenplay and it was a bit of a mess at first. And I, I wrote it quite quickly um, and sent it to the BFI because I was looking for development funding and they uh, read it and they liked it and they gave me the funding um, and essentially said, you know, put it together. We'll see what it looks like at the end. Um, potentially with a view to making it. So I spent six, seven, six or seven months working with a script editor to probably, I probably wrote about six or seven drafts of that screenplay. This was about 2014, 2015. Um, and we put it together and the, the people at the BFI and Creative UK, they loved it, but they sort of concluded that it wasn't going to be possible to make it. Um, one, because it was just too expensive. So I learned while this was happening that it would cost something like it cost something like five million an hour to shut the Thames down because you're wow. asking to shut down you know shipping traffic and lanes and stuff like that so they couldn't afford that themselves I mean they wouldn't come onto it just producing solely they'd have you know productive partners but at this exactly the same time quite a lot of the police thrillers that were being put out into the um into the cinema at the time they weren't they weren't making bank they weren't doing well and that kind of downfall kind of basically started with, um, you know, the streamers were on the rise. TV was becoming, starting to really in kind of gain traction in its golden age. Um, and there was a film called Welcome to the Punch that was not well received, but it was sort of sold like it's, you know, it's this British heat. And it sort of just didn't do the numbers and sort of fell apart. And at the same time, there was a Colin Farrell film called London Boulevard, which was supposed to do the same thing. And that wasn't doing well. And they just sort of concluded that the market for police thrillers and crime thrillers like that, there just wasn't one in the UK. So it kind of fell apart from that point, but the script always, always existed. And those characters, David and Naomi, just, they just haunted me, Chloe. I, I couldn't, mm. I moved on to other things and I was, was working on Holby City for a while, but they were always sort of there in some kind of subterranean space in my head. They just wouldn't leave me alone. And I remember thinking, so you know, what are my options here? You know, do I write a sequel to a film I'll never get made? Do I turn it into a TV show? What's that about? Um, and I have always, I had always wanted to write a novel and I never really felt like I was um, able to. Like I sort of didn't give myself permission emotionally as well as literally. I always kind of assumed that um, I couldn't do it. And when I met other authors, I'd always think, you know, hats off, round of applause, because I can't do that. But the more I started thinking about Dive, the more I realised that actually the the complexion of the story would really lend itself to something longer form, and it could sustain itself as a a thriller, but you know, as a as a as a commercial crime novel. So I just started writing it and hoping for the best, and used the screenplay as a kind of a blueprint for that. And that was great because it meant that I didn't get lost. But also, there were a lot of things that needed to change about the story and the the format and so on. And yeah, that's kind of really how it happened. Well, I'm so pleased that it didn't completely disappear and dissolve because obviously you saw something in this idea that kept staying with you and you saw potential and it's always so difficult to say goodbye to ideas. And I still think that even if you've abandoned a project, a novel, a script, whatever, 
there are some kernels of it that stay with you forever and that you'll probably revisit at some point, even if you don't get to tell the same story. But I'm glad that the kind of the main part of this turned into a novel. And I guess you had this central structure, you had this the plot, even though you had to make some changes. It's very visual, your novel. And I'm wondering whether the kind of the screenplay and the way you pictured your words coming alive helped you with the writing of the novel. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question. I yeah, the short answer is yes, absolutely. I live in London, so whenever I'm sort of near the Thames, I always like to go and have a look at it. It is such a provocative landscape. Maybe it's a, maybe it's systemic for Londoners, but it's they sort of ignore the river. I think unless you know it's I don't know it's high summer and everyone's on South Bank having a pina colada or something, then it's really nice to be by the river. But quite a lot of the time, the river is kind of this. It's almost like a liminal space, you know, it's it cuts right through the city and um, it's something to sort of be crossed, you know, and we definitely do have that kind of north south of the river divide. But at the same time, every now and then you hear people that are working in offices nearby and they'll see they'll see divers on police boats. You'll see someone down the foreshore picking up an object that shouldn't be there. And I just think it's such a powerful um landscape and it feels really rich with I guess that kind of broad potential that, that that word cinematic really plays into one of the things I was really interested in writing about was about male mental health and men's loneliness and how men don't talk about their feelings and what they do with that and then writing up from the point of view of a character that sort of essentially projects all of their baggage and and takes it underwater with them and then sort of attempts to leave it there and it just felt like a really powerful kind of metaphor for the things you don't see underneath the surface and the fact that you've got a character who is essentially at peace when they're underwater, but somewhere where they are, they're essentially diving blind, it's nil visibility, and it is a hugely dangerous space. But for that to be the safe space for a character felt like that was a really interesting, that was really interesting narrative ground to start mining. And I guess writing the novel, you really had to dig deep on your characters, what was going on in your characters in their life. Because when you're writing a script, it's just the external stuff that they're saying and, you, and you're relying on an actor's performance. But when you're changing that into a novel, you happen to really do the work there and really dig deep into their kind of internal life and their thoughts. And how is that as a challenge for you when you're used to writing screenplays? I really loved it. I I did love it. I um the the very first draft um so the screenplay is a very very singular perspective because I love film noir, I love neo noir, um and I love kind of all of those old films from the 40s going up into the 70s and those films they have a very particular kind of rhythm that you know they wouldn't be made now. I'm talking Chinatown in double uh, double indemnity, French connection, three days of the condor, movies like that. But the, the reason that they work is because the detective or the kind of the investigating character finding things out at the same time the audience does. And it's not a shared perspective. It's, there isn't sort of a, a a subplot or a B or C story. It is just their perspective going all the way through it. I mean, if you look at, if you go and watch Chinatown again, it's just Jake Gibbs go investigating and finding things out. And that's really fun for the audience because they feel like they are walking in that that character's shoes. 
they are the surrogate character. And the first draft of the novel was originally, it was just solely David's point of view. The problem with that is there's there's there has to be quite a lot of world building in the story because I'm sort of assuming that readers will come to this knowing nothing about police diving. Um, he's also a character that has lost his humility at the beginning of the story in a lot of in a lot of a lot of ways. So he has it, even though it's his narrative arc, you're not going to be able to appreciate that unless you see him through the point of view of other characters around him. So that's when I really started to think about, you know, bringing Naomi into it and developing her a lot more. And she became the more challenging character to write, I think, for all sorts of reasons. Her narrative arc is that she believes something at the beginning of the story and then she's proved to be right. And she is trying to help David see that for himself while she's also trying to uh, figure out the crimes that are being committed and what is going on. Mm. And that was really quite challenging to write because for a character that essentially doesn't change their point of view and they had to sort of make them so this is certainly true of Naomi because she's in a, a fairly toxic male dominated workspace. She has to shrink herself. She has to make herself look and feel and sound smaller. So I had this character that wasn't necessarily naturally an introvert who then had to kind of investigate quietly in a way that she wasn't used to because she was used to following the rule book. And now she has to kind of really toe the the moral and the legal line to find out what's going on. So there was quite a lot of all of the chapters, which is all from Naomi's point of view, they proved to be quite a lot more challenging than David's did. But I think that might just be because I, I see myself in David. I really relate to his story. Mm. And Naomi, I had to dig a little bit deeper and work a lot harder but I'm very lucky that I have very intelligent female friends who have talked to me about their life experience of misogyny in the workplace, their experience of working in the Met Police. I did talk to a few uh, detectives as well who were really helpful and instructive. So that really helped kind of develop Naomi's character. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, actually. And I, and I can just tell by hearing you speak about your characters how much you've thought about their arc and their kind of in their life and also the the struggles that they're having personally and professionally. I was going to ask you about Naomi and the kind of writing as a female voice, because you, you really do touch on this feeling of a, a male dominated environment and how that impacts her. There was always discussions about kind of how we write other voices and other experiences that are not our own. And you mentioned speaking to friends of yours and women who you could kind of pick up uh, perhaps a a sense of how they are in the workplace so do you, did, was that a challenge as well getting her voice right and making her kind of authentically feel like a woman in this situation yeah that was a real challenge and you know I'm I'm fully prepared to admit my own limitations as an author I think I mean I, I can I'm I can happily sort of say that I think the 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 book that's out there is the the best version of the book that I'm capable of writing at this point in my in my writing journey. But I had to work really hard to make sure that Naomi didn't feel tokenistic because Naomi is the moral center of the story. She is the person who is and she needs to be that because she is the the surrogate character for the audience in a lot of ways. Um because she comes into this world knowing nothing about it, so she is literally a fish out of water. 
and she believes what you hope that the Met Police continue to believe. Mm. You don't want, you, you know, if 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 something has happened uh, at home or in the workplace, you want Naomi to turn up. You don't want David to turn up. <laughs> so it was really kind of about making sure that I earned that her her core beliefs and her mindset, but also making her flaws feel realistic and and in a way kind of truthful to the real experience of what women working for the Metropolitan Police face. Mm. So I did do a lot of research by talking to a lot of people. I read a lot um, and just ended up having a lot of conversations, not just about, you know, this particular landscape in the Met Police, but what is it like to step out of your comfort zone and have to sort of um, code switch or minimise your behaviour in a certain way that Naomi has to do? That was a real challenge. I mean, you'll have to tell me whether I succeeded with that or not. I don't know. No, I, I definitely think you did. And that's why I wanted to ask you about it, because I thought, you know, I think all of us have probably read characters um, written by the opposite gender and thought this just doesn't ring true. But I, I definitely felt and I and I really appreciated the fact that you examined her her life in the Met Police and didn't just have her as, you know, the, the kind of kick ass woman that's, you know, uh, this kind of almost almost kind of caricature in itself of this sort of strong female character, which you see is almost like a, a kickback against the stereotype. So I was pleased to see that you'd you thought about how realistically it would be for her, and that obviously comes down to your research and attention to detail. And research was one of the things that I really wanted to speak to you about because I thought that you handled that so well because. It is dense. It is complicated. It's a it's a career I read this book knowing nothing about, and never got the sense that I was, if you'll pardon the pun, drowning in all this detail and all the technical side of what it's like to work for the Met in the diving team. But you 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 approach it in such an accessible way that you don't make it dense. You don't make it difficult. Your readers are going along for the ride. So you you mentioned speaking to the police. What else did you do in terms of research and how did you kind of approach laying the foundations to make it believable, authentic, but not overloading your reader with too much information? And did you ever worry about getting anything wrong or did you just have to kind of like accept that you probably would get something wrong and just hope for the best? Um uh yes i i did have to expect that there would be things that i got wrong i think i had the benefit of have living with this story for quite some time took me probably all in from first conception to drafting stage of the novel probably took about 4 years to write but i had been living with it long before that because of the screenplay so i've been in this quite fortuitous position of having spent six or seven years really thinking about the story and that meant that there were some kind of experiential things that I could do that just meant that I could access the research in a in a in quite a specific way in my own time rather than feeling rushed so there's a museum down in Wapping that's dedicated to the maritime history and commercial divers who are essentially the sort of the, the mix of the of the maritime world so you know if they're building a building but you know they, the 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 land is waterlogged then commercial divers will be the person the people to you know excavate that space and so on and you know 
quite a lot of those people were genuinely really happy to talk to me because if you you know if you reach out and kind of say like I'd love to buy a coffee and just ask you about your life and your experience they they tend to be pretty happy with that the police divers I know were because it's a fairly it's a fairly solitary and you know quite a lot of the time it's quite a grim task you know they're they are going to fulfill a very very specific mandate and then afterwards they have to somehow let it go and divorce their thinking from what they just did and then go home and you know live their lives it was a real kind of balancing act of going how much authenticity is required for the reader to then suspend their disbelief later on in the story when it takes it becomes much more like the it, it sort of gains the propulsion of a crime thriller so it has to behave like a thriller and I just found all those kind of real world details really kind of lent itself to making the reader go, okay, I there's a version of this world that I can choose to believe and I believe in this world. So the research I did, um, it did take a very long time, but at the same time, I always knew that the things that I were going to use, the things I wanted to use could only ever serve the story that was being told. And by the time I came around to the novel, I knew the story pretty robustly so I knew what was gonna stay but I also knew quite clearly what was gonna go and I just I did an awful lot of reading a lot of reading it, the that's the nice thing about the Thames is that it's a really really well document documented landscape you know Peter Ackroyd's written like six books about it so I spent a lot of time just going okay I need I just need to learn more about this you know I imagine there's a lot of things that you may be included in the novel's earlier drafts that didn't make the final cut where you were possibly telling the reader too much and then you had to pair back. Was that the case? Or did you kind of, did you have a good grasp of what was needed and or was that maybe kind of your editor's job to say, um, this is too much information or this is not enough. We need more here. How did you kind of balance that? I, I did, I did a couple of passes myself where I just sort of knew, you know, I'm, I'm, I love reading work aloud. And I've, I use that there's a kind of a read aloud function on Word, which kind of gives you this um, automated voice. And I use that a lot, you know, just even if I'm writing emails and things, just to kind of root out those little spelling mistakes. And you can sometimes feel, even when you're using that, when the story clicks in and out, I, it, it's quite hard to explain. But the for me, it feels like the writing is, okay, I'm compelled by this because it's propulsive. I've lost that. Why is it kind of clicked out? And nine times out of 10, I found it was because I was just saying too much and it's not what the characters would be thinking in that moment. Mm. Um, and Propulsion, because it's a thriller, it, it it was really, really important to get the, the pace right. So I probably cut about 30,000 words out of the finished thing. But that was just, you know, just, I think, jargon. I felt, because I'd done the research, Chloe, I felt like I had to have it. You know, yeah. I was kind of wedded to it. And then I had to sort of, take myself aside and have a word and kind of go no 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 that's that's not a darling you're killing that's <laughs> that's research that exists out there yeah and sometimes I think you almost feel like but I spent two hours researching this tiny little fact and I don't want to lose it because it's going to feel like wasted time but I always say this to people even if you have to cut 30,000 words or 50,000 or in my case it was about 75,000 words um it didn't feel painful in the end because I knew it was the right thing. And I learned something from it because I think every day that you're writing, you're learning something, whether you cut it or not. 
Yeah, definitely. I, I, I remember um, getting a comment from my editor, um, which was along the lines of I'd included a detail and she'd kind of gone, is this true? And I knew it was true because I read it somewhere, like the research was there somewhere. And she just wanted me to justify it and going to go, OK, if you can if you can find the 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 detail that proves this then keep it and I felt it was really important to include this detail because it was important to the story and I for the life of me I don't know what happened but I went through all of my notes I went through all of the things all the word documents on my computer and I couldn't find this detail couldn't find it and I remember just go ah what am I going to do here and 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 that was difficult because in the end I realized that I'd sort of um, I think it is possible to over research <laughs> and I kind of ah okay right well uh, the research is there somewhere however I can't find it so this thing is going to have to come out mm-hmm. so there were a few instances like that um, but I'm grateful to my editor that she, she sort of picked up on going it and I think really what she was saying was do you really need that you know do you really need to say this yeah I often find that there's comments from um, editors that that you that say oh you know what did you mean here and then by the time you get the chance to answer and and you're doing the edits you think I've got no idea what I meant there I'm just gonna have to either wing it or, or delete it that did happen a few times you know is this what you intended what did you mean here could you say more could you say less because <laughs> we might be talking about something that I wrote I don't know two years ago you know mm. at the point that we were line editing a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So I'd love to talk a little bit about your journey to publication. So can you tell us how you came to get your agent and then your book deal? I'm guessing because you started writing your screenplay a long time ago that the whole journey has taken quite a bit of time. 
Yes. Um, and it was complicated by the pandemic. And that, and that sounds like, uh, definitely sounds like a first world problem, doesn't it? Um, but I was, I was um, on a um, Curtis Brown creative course at the time that I had finished probably the second pass edit of of the novel. So it was a second draft stage. And I'd had a couple of beta readers that had a look at it and given me some notes. Um, and at the beginning of 2020, I was basically ready to go. Um, and then that that was supposed to be a six-month writing your novel course. Um, and it got cut off after six weeks because we'd reached that 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 kind of dangerous moment where everyone realised it was getting quite serious. Mm. Um, so I was kind of, the pandemic had just begun. We were in lockdown. I had this sort of finished novel and I was thinking, I, I don't know what to do here because I don't know whether this is the right time to do it or it could be the absolute wrong time to do it. What I think was really amazing about how the publishing industry responded was that they realised that p- writers would be feeling like this and they just started to do quite a lot of online activity. So suddenly agents would sort of have, um, you know, like town halls with a whole load of writers and go, here's what we're looking for, here's what we're doing there. And, it, I, you know, this, is, this might not be the case, but it felt to me like that was a new thing, you know, that agents weren't going on Zoom and just talking to Joe Public about what they're looking for and so on. So I, I spent a bit of time procrastinating and just listening to what agents were out there looking for and, and took that time to, you know, put my query spreadsheet together and just really kind of do my research about the agents that were out there and who they were represented and so on. And at the time, there was an agency that was running something called a book camp that was essentially what it was, was you submit a synopsis. And I think it was the first three chapters first 10,000 words, something along those lines, submit that. Um, and if you won it, you, you uh, got an offer of representation, but they also gave you, you, you also kind of got these online workshops about structure and writing dialogue and so on. And at the time I thought, okay, well, in for a penny, we'll, we'll see what happens. And I guess with those, I, I sort of never really expect to hear back from them, but I submitted it in, that was, that would have been in March of that year. And then I got a lovely email from them in September saying, we like this, we want to we want to talk about it. So I had a meeting with them and it felt like they really responded to the world of the story and David and Naomi's world. And that's how I did it. So I didn't, in the end, go out on um, on general submission. I didn't really query. And I'm I'm sure that's really irritating for authors out there that are coming into the world and into this world and going, Oh yeah, but every every author seems to have a <laughs> a different story about how they did it. But that was my experience. Yeah, I think although it can be frustrating to hear that, it, it's also the beauty of it as well because there isn't just one straightforward way of doing it. And if you don't if you don't get an answer from querying, that's that's it. You're you know give up. There are so many different ways, and and I think one of the positives of the pandemic has been like you've mentioned agents opening up a lot more and doing online um, events or opening up their uh, Twitter feeds or emails, whatever it is, to try and connect with more people who maybe before now haven't had the chance to get that foot in the door. So I think it is a positive thing. So you've got your book deal with an independent publisher. And I know one thing that people are always keen to talk about is 
book covers and how much uh, you get a say in it and how much you kind of get to put input in. And of course, everyone has a slightly different story on this as well. I mean, I think people will be surprised to hear that authors don't really get a huge say in what their book looks like. But I know you were quite involved um, in the initial stages of talking about what you wanted to see or what you didn't want to see. So can you talk a little bit about your cover process and how that went? I guess the first thing to say is I'm kind of, I am, um, I was sort of uh, responding to uh, the ideas about the cover in a very instinctual way. And I think the reason for that is uh, we, we were, talking about this a little bit you know we're we're not design people we're authors but authors are readers as well and we 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 do go into bookshops and we go oh that looks good and we you know I like to think that I'm not um influenced by the cover but I think that that's probably a bit of a fib I think I know I am you know in some in some way somewhere and one of the reasons I really cared about the book cover is because I felt the USP of the story was it was about a world we hadn't seen so I didn't really want it to be, um, I didn't really want it to look like a police procedural that that fits into that very traditional bracket because I didn't feel like it was a traditional story. And I felt like if the reader picked up something that they thought was just going to be a standard procedural and then they read Dive, that they would be, they would feel shortchanged or disappointed. So it felt to me like it was really important to emphasise that this is not about you know, the CID, this is not about detectives solving a, a fairly straightforward case. Um, this is about divers who are not allowed to investigate. And that's the point. So I was really, I really insisted on making sure that the Thames featured. Um, and just going back to what I was saying about like 70s thrillers, where you've got a very limited perspective. It was really important to me that David was on the cover because he is the one that has the narrative arc and he's the one that goes on the journey. That, that first book is his story. Um, and there was, I, and I think it's to do with market forces or that's my um, sort of understanding of it. But there was a lot of feedback about that and a lot of talk about how it was really, really important to have a female surrogate on the cover. And they really wanted Naomi to be there. I'm so less resistant to this with the second book because Naomi is the one that has the narrative arc in the second book. But in the case of the first, it felt like I it was really, really important to get that right. And that I'm I'm really passionate about the that, you know, there is a kind of a whole kind of other kind of um subplot in the book about David's mental health and his ability to function as a father and his ability to do that safely. And the own limitations that he puts on his himself and his well-being and the way he sees himself in the world um and in order to tell that story i felt like the the cover really had to be a kind of visual representation of that you know so i was fairly insistent about certain things in the end what kind of happened was a cover came in about four or five months before publication and it was it essentially looked like a psychological thriller and the title had been changed without me giving me, I hadn't given them permission to do that. And they'd sort of gone, Oh, this is just the, you know, this is just the mock-up, you know, tell us what you think. But the, the way it was phrased wasn't that it was a bit more kind of, um, this is definitively what we're going for. And their 
essentially did have to be an intervention at that point. We said, this isn't, this isn't right. This isn't working. And it sort of looks like a genre that this, this is not that genre. And that's really important. It's, it's position in the market. So uh, they went away, did a complete redesign. And eventually we got to a, 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 a kind of a second intervention where I had continued to give them notes that were narrowing down, I think, a kind of a core design that we had, which is the design that the the cover is now, where I'd sort of said, you know, can we talk about uh, font? Can we talk about colour schemes and so on? Um, and essentially they kind of gone, you know, there's, there's been a lot of investment in the cover. We're, we're not going to make any more changes. You need to decide whether or not you're happy to proceed. And that was a... That was a real kind of ripping the plaster off for me because I had to sort of reconcile myself with what I felt was important. But I'd also kind of talked to friends and family about it, talked to people really close to me, and they were they didn't have the same kind of visceral reaction to the cover that I did. I think I was not quite willing to look beyond what I perceived as the kind of the limitations of what the cover was. Um and I think that was probably a classic case of me wishing I could step out of my outside of my experience and and see it completely objectively. And I I just don't think I was able to do that because, you know, I wrote the story, I I wrote the novel, so I I couldn't find a way to do that. So I am really grateful that people kind of took me in hand and went, ah, this is this fits the market. It's um, it's indicative of the story you've written. You know, you're just going to have to put it out there and see what happens. It's so hard, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, it's your story, it's your book, it's your name on the cover, and you want to be 100% happy with it. You want it to visually represent how you see the book. And it is difficult. We are readers, as as we've said, we're not graphic designers, but we do have some idea, we think, of where it fits in into the market. But you have to put your faith in the team that they know where it's going to sit on the shelf or where it's going to be in a shop or where it's going to be on Amazon, what it's going to look as a, as a thumbnail. And you have to kind of trust that they have the book's best interest at heart. And we do as well, but in a different way, I think. And like, maybe you're right in saying that we're too close to the product to see it for what it, what it is, which is essentially a product that they have to sell rather than art or a story or whatever you want to call it. And I think that is something and and thank you for your your honesty in talking about this because I think it's something that a lot of authors will relate to and have experienced where there are lots of things in the process that we can't control that we wish we probably could control and we just have to at some point go do you know what I this isn't the most important thing but it might feel like it in the moment but actually probably six months down the line you won't mind so much and I wondered how you felt, because I know as well something that's that changed for you was that your publication date changed because um, your, your book was originally due to come out in 2022 and then moved to 2023 because they had um, a release schedule that they wanted to, to make kind of more um, inviting for readers. But it is hard trying to kind of cope with things that are completely out of your control and be okay with it. So how have you kind of learned to deal with those aspects of the publication process i well i think i responded to some of the curveballs that were thrown 
in the same way that I learned to deal with the book cover, because I think that the bottom line with the book cover, and this is something I, I wish I'd sort of figured out for myself sooner, is that there is definitely an element of you've written this novel, you're going to put it out into the world and people are going to going to buy it or not buy it. Uh, but the people that are going to buy it are presumably going to read it and and relate to it and bring their own life experience to it. So at some point you kind of realise that just by virtue of you publishing a book, the, the 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 story that you've told, you do have to let go of it because it's it's not about your experience uniquely anymore. It's about other people interacting with it and going, oh yeah, I get that. I I I, I can see myself in that story or those characters or whatever. So in a way. I had to sort of say to myself, what you think of the cover is probably far less important than what the people that go out and buy crime thrillers think of it. And you won't know that until you're willing to proceed and move on and open yourself up a bit more to new to new possibilities. Mm. So that was how I reconciled, re- reconciled myself with the cover. And, and the, the same is true with the, the schedule change and bits and pieces that sort of occurred behind the scenes. I just had to conclude that I can't control things and that's okay. Um, and the idea being that people have, that people are, uh, they're, they're publishing professionals. So they know a lot more about the market and they know more about algorithms. They know more about market position than I do. And you sort of put your faith in them. And I realized that's sort of what I had to do. And, and one of the things I sort of said to myself was focus on what is in your control and try not to focus on the things that are outside of your control and the bottom line is what's in my control telling the best possible version of the story um honoring the characters and writing well and that's the only thing that I can focus on there's a lot in the publishing world that is completely outside of your control but you you know that might be a blessing in disguise you know, you don't you don't know how a book is going to fall. No one does. And I think that's the great that's the great kind of myth of publishing is that everyone kind of knows what they're doing, including the people that are working behind the scenes. But everyone, to some extent, I think, is putting books out there into the marketplace and going, OK, well, we will see what happens. You know, mm-hmm. no one knows what's going to hit and what's going to what's going to land at any particular moment. Everyone's, you know, everyone in the publishing world wants a hit on their hands. Right. Yeah. But they're always always kind of second guessing it and the only way they know is what the market's doing at any one time and I know far less about the market than I do about the act of writing so just being really really strict about what's in my power what can I control and I found that quite a good way to kind of reconcile myself with people's response to the book as well you know there have been it's been I've had some pretty lovely reviews, which is really nice. Not everyone's got on with it, but you you know you know that's going to happen because you're kind of putting a book out into the world for people that don't know you that have a completely objective view of the book. And if I can say that I've written the best possible version of this and it's the best book that I'm capable of right now, then it's really easy to kind of go, okay, that's fine. I can I can take the I can take the rejection. I can take the bad feedback there's a lot of kind of um baggage that comes with being a writer that I guess is just you know insecurity and self-consciousness but focusing on what's in my control really helps me to kind of um not necessarily get rid of that completely but just to deal with it 
So finally, John, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on next? Yes, I can. I am, I'm 5,000 words, which I know isn't doesn't feel like very much, but it feels kind of seismic to me because my world has only really been dive for a very long time. And now this is entirely new. Um, it's set in California, so a very different world from uh, the world of London and the Thames. And um, essentially, it is a story about a teenage boy who has had a strange adolescence and we don't quite understand why until the day his father comes home and has kidnapped uh, a little boy. And uh, the main character kind of realises what's happened and um, this kind of triggers memories of what happened to him. And so he decides that he's going to rescue this boy and they're going to escape, which they do. Um, and the story essentially takes them on this journey across the wilds of California to get the child back from where he was taken from. And along the story, uh, along the journey, the um, this protagonist, this teenager will learn more about the memories that they'd suppressed and figured out what happened to them and find some redemption for themselves based on the the adolescence they've had. So I don't quite know what it is. I'd love to tell you what the genre is, but <laughs> I, I know it's not a psychological thriller. I know it's not a crime thriller. And, and I think that's what's exciting about it for me at the moment is because I don't really have any of those kind of marketable questions. I'm just writing for the pleasure of doing it. Um, and I'm really, really enjoying it. And I think I know where the story's going, but I'm also, I'm unlike Dive, where I was plotting quite fiercely this time, I'm just trying to trust my gut and go, okay, I'm just going to see where this first part takes me. And I've kind of got a sense of, you know, which kind of story beats I need to hit. Um, and just really, really enjoying the writing. And I think sometimes we forget that it's a, a, a lot of it should be about the pleasure of it because writers talk a lot of the time about how difficult writing is and how challenging and how solitary it can be. And, you know, you maybe get to 50K or 30K and you just get stuck and you never come back to it. But, and that may well happen to me, but for the time being, uh, I'm having a good time. Well, it sounds like an amazing premise for a novel. And even though you're only 5,000 words in, it sounds like you've got a real sense of where it's going. So I'm very excited to read it when you, when it gets to that point, John. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you, Chloe. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks again. That was John Barton talking about his crime novel, Dive, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop, hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. <laughs>